Episode 3, Meeting the Cowboys, Part 2 7th Squadron, 17th Cavalry Colors The practice of carding standards to act both as rallying points for troops and to mark the location of the commander is thought to have originated in Egypt some 5,000 years ago. It was formalized in the armies of medieval Europe, with standards being emblazoned with the commander's coat of arms. As armies became trained and adopted set formations, each regiment's ability to keep its formation was potentially critical to its success, and therefore the army's success. In the chaos of battle, soldiers needed to be able to determine where their regiment was. Due to the advent of modern weapons and subsequent changes in tactics, colors are no longer carried into battle. Instead, they're carried in parades, reviews, and displayed in formations and ceremonies in remembrance of their former presence on the battlefield. Set on the traditional color of the cavalry yellow lies the symbols of the 7th Squadron, 17th Cavalry Regiment. At the center, the United States Military Coat of Arms overlaid with the 17th Cavalry Regimental Shield and Crest. On the ribbon, which lies in the beak of the eagle, is inscribed with the 7th Squadron motto, Death Rides. Clutched in the eagle's talons are an olive branch on one side, and on the other thirteen arrows, which represents America's power in peace and war. Displayed in the top right under the fleur-de-lis, which represents perfection and strength, is the number seven, representing the squadron. Seventeenth Cavalry is inscribed on a banner beneath the coat of arms representing the regiment. These features are what make the colors unique to the seventh squadron 17th Cavalry Regiment. I didn't meet Brody until I moved down to Alpha Troop. A couple of months after I moved down there, we went to the Joint Readiness Training Center, JRTC, and that's down in Fort Polk, Louisiana. It's one of two national training centers that Army units have to go to in order to validate before deployment. I know that sounds crazy if you're not in the military, but in order for a unit to be marked as like, hey, this unit is prepared to deploy, they kind of got to prove it to someone first, right? So units go down to JRTC or out to NTC in California, the National Training Center, and they participate in this big exercise. And there there are people there who are subject matter experts in certain fields, and they observe the unit operate and kind of mark where they are in their performance metrics and and they get validated to deploy or not. Now, it takes a lot of bad things to happen for a unit to not be marked as like, hey, you're good to go, you can go downrange. Um, But I've heard tell of it happening before. When I went to JRTC, again, I was really new to Alpha Troop. I'd only been there a couple of months. I didn't know everyone very well, and I was on the opposite shift that Brody was on, um, but I was so impressed with him just from like the word go, from just being in the periphery of what he was doing because in the helicopter world, it's not a question of like if something bad is going to happen, it's just a question of when. And frequently there are maintenance issues and you can do a precautionary landing and and generally get some things fixed. Catastrophic failures, I didn't see a whole lot of them in my time, but they happen. But I just remember being in our 
little office area and someone coming in and saying, hey, uh, Brody lost hydraulics. And losing hydraulics in an airframe, especially in a, in a Kiowa, like kind of a big deal. Like you train that emergency procedure in flight school and I sucked at it. Like a lot of things in flight school, I was very bad at hydraulics off for a very long time um, until it kind of clicked for me. And my heart, when I heard, hey, Brody is landing without hydraulics, my heart started racing and everyone went outside to watch. And at JRTC, you just have like not a great runway to land on and everyone was so nervous watching him put that airframe down um, because without hydraulics, you can't hover into a nice little parking pad and and put the aircraft down nice and gentle. You have to do a run-on landing. And so, you know, a lot of helicopters have wheels these days, but the Kiowa doesn't. It still has skids, and it just – it can turn really ugly really fast without hydraulics. But Brody landed it, and then, like – I think three days later, if I remember correctly, they ended up with smoke in the cockpit, like the airframe had caught on fire out in the air, like training area. And so they had to do a precautionary landing because one of the, it was like the AC or DC generator had caught on fire. I don't remember all the details. I just remember in the span of like three weeks at JRTC, Brody had two pretty significant events as the pilot in command of an airframe and I mean like he just was so cool about it like he came back into the CP into our little office area after that hydraulic landing and he goes hey boys nobody tell Amanda about this his wife and he just seemed so nonplussed by all of it so that was kind of my introduction to Brody Smith I say all of that to say that you're not going to find a cooler cucumber. And aside from all of that, he's got an incredible history with the military. You'll hear that in some of our conversations going forward. And I'm really excited uh, for him him to kind of get to share his piece of this this pie. So um, let's hear from Brody. Um, Brody Smith. And I grew up in Radford, Virginia, which is in the southwestern part of the state there in the mountains. And uh, I'm the youngest of three boys. I've got two older brothers. Come from somewhat of a military family. My dad was in the Air Force uh, as a pilot before he sort of blew his back out and and uh, couldn't fly anymore. So uh, he didn't have too long of a career. My granddad was a combat engineer in World War II. And then I've got you know uncles and great uncles and everything else that were also in the military. So I guess you could say I came from a military family, but uh, I graduated from Radford High in 1992 and then went down to uh, Clemson, South Carolina to play baseball there at Clemson University and uh, graduated from there in 1997. If you do the math, yes, I did take a victory lap and add that fifth year in there because I was having a little bit too much fun. What's interesting about Brody is that for a lot of people, when they decide to enlist in the military, they'll do it right out of high school. And generally speaking, if they've gone to college, they will commission. But Brody didn't do that. He went and spent a few years out in the workforce. 
Yeah, yeah. That, uh, well, I started out uh, inside sales for a computer software company up in Greenville. And, uh, you know, in the course of two and a half years, I had three different jobs because I worked inside sales for about nine months, had an opportunity to get outside with a different company um, selling cabinets, believe it or not. I was, it was almost kind of dangerous for the company to do it, but they gave me as a you know, 23, four year old, all of North and South Carolina. And they gave me a vehicle and they gave me a, an expense account. And they said, go travel all of North and South Carolina and try to sell these cabinets. So basically what I was doing was going into other businesses and trying to get them to carry our line of cabinets. And they were really good you know, a really reputable company, but man, did I have a lot of fun. I spent most of my time, as you can imagine, up and down the coast of North and South Carolina. Yeah. So I did that for about nine months and then a real good friend of my brother's got in touch with me and was just like, Hey, our, our pharmaceutical company is, is looking to expand and they're hiring and they're looking for quite a few people down in your neck of the woods. So is this something you'd be interested in? And at the time, my, my older brother, one of my older brothers was in pharmaceuticals and, you know, it was just, it was a very good job. And so I did that for about the last year before I, I went in the army in January of 2000. I'd always thought about going in the military and had a desire to go in the military. And so after a couple, couple years after college, I decided to enlist in the army, even though I had my degree, my thought process on that was that I wanted to see the enlisted side and gain that experience as an enlisted member of the Army. Okay. Before I joined the Army, I had no idea what the difference was between someone who was enlisted and someone who was an officer. And I had to give a presentation one time to some high schoolers. And this is the best way I could come up with to explain it. Picture the office. You're right. The office. The show. Starring Michael Scott. Michael Scott in that analogy would be the officer. So he's ultimately in charge of all the operations of Dunder Mifflin within the Scranton location, right? So think of him as perhaps like a platoon leader. And he is required to make sure that they're meeting their sales quotas and keeping track of equipment and all of these things, right? That's the officer. Generally speaking, more responsibility, larger oversight of what's going on day-to-day operations. Now, if you enlist in the military, then you're generally speaking picking up a what we call in the Army an MOS or a military occupational specialty, and you're raising your hand to say, hey, I'm going to be the sales guy for Dunder Mifflin, or I'm going to be the secretary, or I'm going to be in the warehouse, or I'm going to manage HR, right? Like you're picking one facet of that office space to specialize in, so that's kind of what the breakdown is between being an officer and being enlisted. Now, Brody was a warrant officer after he was enlisted. We'll touch on that special cat later. What's true about being an officer in the Army is that you have to have a bachelor's degree. Now, there are various pathways to become an officer and timelines to obtain that bachelor's degree, um, but true Every day is that in order to be a, an officer, you have to have a bachelor's degree, which is what makes Brody's scenario just a little bit more unique is that he had his bachelor's degree and then he chose to enlist. So he chose to go do a, a specialty in something um, as opposed to becoming the office manager, so to speak. Well, 
that was one there there were a few reasons <clears throat> or things that contributed to me making that decision number one i think it was just how i was raised as far as um i always was involved with something and always right in the middle of of whatever was going on and didn't really have one of those personalities where i just sort of like to lay around and do nothing and and you know i'm just happy i'm here and that type of thing I was always wanting to be right at the front of whatever was going on. And then another reason was, like I say, I had an older brother, the middle brother of the three of us uh, that uh, was in the army and had recently got out for just a little bit of time, but he was in 101st Airborne there at Fort Campbell. And I talked to him about the fact I was thinking I was going in and he told me, he was like, Brody, knowing you the way I know you, you need to go to the recruiter and ask for a Ranger contract. And if they don't give you a Ranger contract, don't sign up which is basically what happened. I went and, and, and uh, I had a few things I wanted. I wanted to pay off my school loans. I wanted to, I knew there was a signing bonus. So I wanted that. And then the third thing was I want to arrange a contract. And uh, the guy offered me two of the three and he said, I don't have any range of contracts. And so I got up and shook his hand. He's like, call me when you do. And uh, he sort of had that open mouth look at me. And uh, miraculously, somehow he found a range of contract and called me two days later. So, I think it took him a couple of days to realize I was serious and wasn't coming back. He called and offered it and I took it and signed the paperwork. But yeah. Um, and I think that's also another reason, you know, that, that, that background that I wanted to enlist also, because I talked to enough people, including my brother to know, uh, what everyone's role was for the most part in, uh, Ranger regiment and uh, the Ranger battalion. And I wanted to be kicking indoors and I wanted to be there in the stack and I wanted to be in the action. I didn't want to be behind everybody directing. I wanted to be, you know, in the room, I guess you could say. And so that was another reason why I enlisted initially on that Ranger contract. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was quite a ride. Something else that struck me talking to Brody that I hadn't quite realized was that he enlisted in 2000, and he enlisted as a ranger in 2000, so before September 11th, and um, I kind of was surprised by that. I, I had always assumed that what happened was, was, you know, the towers fell, and we were attacked, and Brody went to the local recruiter, and they were taken people for jobs because something was going to happen and we all knew it. And so I was a little surprised to know that he had enlisted before 9-11 happened. So um, I was really curious to hear about where he was and what he was doing in the Ranger Regiment when 9-11 happened. And we were actually over in Germany for a six-week training cycle uh, and was out in the box in Germany when 9-11 happened. So I missed every single bit of it because, you know, we were obviously not sitting in front of the TV screen and we weren't even in the country. So it was a very interesting story for me uh, when it comes to 9-11 because we were just getting bits and pieces and, you know, making telephone calls home to make sure everybody was okay and trying to get their input and that kind of stuff. But we didn't see it. We missed every bit of it. I didn't see any of the footage until I came back. One of my brothers had had video or uh, recorded all of it on a VHS tape back then, of course. So, um, yeah, old school. So, so that's how I saw all the footage of 9/11, and it was well after the fact. I was in uh, Ranger Regiment for four years, and uh, 
like I say, I got there in July of 2000, and then 9-11 happened, obviously, the, the following September. And then, let's see, the following March, we had deployed to Afghanistan. And then uh, a year later, we were right on the edge of uh, Iraq. And uh, so we deployed in March of 2003 as well and was over in Iraq when all that kicked off. So in that uh, short four years, um, it was it was quite a ride. Brody ended up deploying in March of 2002 to Afghanistan. And of course, he did a few other deployments with the Ranger Regiment. But I think listening to him talk about some of those early deployments, especially with such a direct action type unit, um, was really pretty eye-opening for me because my deployment experience and a lot of my training experiences leading up to that deployment were all well-known things. We knew what building we were going to be in. We knew what side of a flight line we would be on. We had maps and pictures and things we could study and know. And just getting to talk to a guy that was there so early on, even for me having been there at the same airfield that he went to um, many, many years later was pretty eye-opening. So this is Brody talking about his first tour to Afghanistan in March of 2002. We were there for three months, and uh, it, it's amazing looking back after doing you know nine-month deployments later in my career how much we did, I guess, in, in those three months. And then when we were in Iraq the next year, we were only over there for four months. But uh, it's like, you know, it, it feels like looking back that we just never stopped really. We were so busy trying to get done as much as we possibly could in that short amount of time. Uh, to set everything up for the next battalion that'd be coming in to replace us. So uh, short deployments, but a lot of uh, a lot of work and action, I guess you could say. Um, we were some of the first, I think, that anybody really knew about. You know how that works. Um, there were definitely, you know, some of the tip of the spear type guys that, uh, and some of the, you know, three-letter agencies and that type of thing that uh, were over there prior to us being there, but, uh, we got there. It was still very much the wild west when we got over there, uh, both Afghanistan and Iraq cause things had so not been established yet. The ROE and the way we needed to be doing business and, and that type of stuff hadn't really, it was very different than it is now, or even was 10 years ago. You know, uh, it was, uh, you're sort of just learning as you go and trying to figure out things as you go. You knew you had, missions and you were looking for certain people and trying to, you know, find them and get them and get some intel and that type of stuff. And, and so it was, it was nothing for us to be sitting there, you know, in our tent, which I know sounds crazy to a lot of people that are deploying, you know, over the last 10, 12, 15 years, but yeah, sitting in our tent on our cot and somebody busting in and saying, Hey, get your stuff on. We're getting ready to head out that type of thing because somebody had been found or some, you know, some source had come in and said, Hey, I know where this guy's at. And, uh, so it was a lot of that type of thing. There were some planned more deliberate missions, but a lot of it was, was like that. You know, it was, you'd go from zero to a hundred in a hurry. By the time I deployed in 2014, the rules of engagement, which you'll hear us say ROE, 
was so well defined and so confined into what every single word meant um, that it proved to be a pretty big problem for us in several engagements. And I wanted to know from Brody what it was like in those, you know, first few months of this war on terror. Those rules of engagement, while they haven't changed all that much, certainly back then were less restrictive. And I, and I wanted to know kind of what his experiences were with them then, because um, that'll kind of play a big part, I think, in a story we'll tell later. It, it took a while, but like I say, in the early going, there wasn't as much discretion as there 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 is now. Um, there were missions where the ROE was very black and white. And what I mean by that is, you know, hey, we're going here and Brody's going to, you know, blow a hole in the wall. And once we're inside, everyone's bad. You know, there were missions like that, you know, so those were easy because it's like, okay, once we're inside, if it's not one of our guys, it's a bad guy. But it's funny because in both of those situations, both my first Afghanistan deployment and then that deployment to Iraq, it's almost like by the time you sort of figured it out and got to where you were really, you know, the wheels were greased and, you know, it was a well-oiled machine. It's like, hey, it's time to start breaking everything down and getting ready for the next group to come in. And I feel like over time that changed because, you know, those guys are gone so often. You know, I've got buddies that I was in Ranger Regiment with and they spent a lot of years in Ranger Regiment and they had, you know, 15, 16, 18 deployments. So those guys, by the time they got to those latter deployments, it was, you know, it was like clockwork. But in the early going, it did take some time. It took the majority of the deployment for you to really get a good feel of, okay, so this this is how we're doing business over here. And this is what we need to pay attention to. And this is what we need to be aware of. And and this is what you need to be careful of and, and, and that type of thing. I think I remember towards the end of our deployment to Afghanistan, um, you know, we, we were stationed out of Bagram back then in 2002. And at that time, Bagram is not the Bagram air base that we know now. Um, we'd still, yeah, we'd still have to, uh, they would put the, the white surveyor's tape or whatever you want to call it up. Uh, and you'd have to walk between that because that was the only part of the base that they had demined. You know, it's like, don't get on the other side of that because we haven't demined that area and you might step on a mine and blow yourself up. But I actually saw a guy who was demining do just that. He was demining and actually hit a mine and it degloved his leg from the ankle all the way up to his knee. It was a bad situation, but that's the way Bagram was back then. It was still, you know, you're living in a tent in the sand. You know, if it rains, it's horrible because everything's flooding right there. And it's just, you know, it was a really rough situation. So as we were constantly trying to improve our foxhole, for lack of a better way to say it. So we had moved sort of on the other side of the airfield and created, started to create what today is sort of the special operations section there on Bagram. And so, you know, we built the hardwood floors you know, raised up off the ground and, and got in the bigger tents and put those on. So, you know, it was like a big deal when all of a sudden we had a, a wooden floor under us that was, you know, six inches off the ground as opposed to just dirt. But uh, so we were filling in all the HESCO walls and all that kind of stuff. And I remember some of the locals um, 
you know, were coming to help us. You know, they had been recruited and we were paying them to, hey, can you come help us? You know, it's sort of some power and numbers type thing. And I remember towards the end, all of a sudden, one day, our platoon sergeant, Pete Rothke, who was a, a great man, he was a hard charger, he was a great man. He pulled us all together and he was like, look, some of these locals are going to be here working with us. And these are some of the things that you might see them do or try to do. And I don't want you to be freaked out. This is just part of their culture, part of the way that they do business. It doesn't mean, you know, what you think it might mean. And I remember one of those things was, is listen, there's a chance that you might be standing there talking to one or two of them. One of them just reaches out and, and holds your hand, you know, which, you know, now we all do that. That's just part of their culture. It doesn't mean necessarily that they're trying to make a move on you or anything. It's just a sign of friendship, a sign of, you know, I'm on your team, that type of thing. And so as we got towards the end of that deployment, we started to try to understand a little bit more of who these people were and how they do their business day to day and what some of those actions that they, they do mean. And we were trying to accommodate those actions, you know, instead of just being like, smack their hand away if it makes you uncomfortable or something. It was kind of one of those things where it's just like, don't do that. You know, we're trying to make friends here now and we need people on our side and that type of thing. So even towards the end of that first deployment, there were, you were starting to see the initial signs of that type of thing, which was understanding these people and realizing they are, you know, human beings that just do things a little bit different. And, and we need to understand how they do things and what, what it means and, and try to sort of, you know, let them know that we realize we're in their country and, and, and we're trying to help them, but we are, you know, guests of, of their country and, and, and that type of thing. So it didn't take too long before we started to work on that. We weren't good at it, but we, we started to work on it. Brody also did a tour to Iraq and he's got a lot of really important reflections on that time. So um, I asked him a little bit more about his time there and what he did. And some of it he can't share because, ooh, it's classified. Um, but some of it he can. And so uh, we got to talk about that for a little while. We were over there prior to the big initial push. Uh, and we were, we were doing things um, that no one else, well, I say no one else, very, very few people knew about. And uh, of course it was happening at night and, uh, we were jumping in and then jumping back out, you know, that, that type of thing, as far as, uh, going in and trying to take care of a few things, almost to kind of prep for the, the initial invasion. And then, uh, we were also over there when the initial invasion took place. So from that point forward, we just pushed into to Iraq and maintained our presence there as opposed to having to go into Iraq and then come back out and Iraq and come back out. But, uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was very different, very different, but, uh, we were there. Yeah. During the, the initial invasion, um, at the time it was just like, I wish I would have been more in the moment and, and appreciated exactly what was going on at that time. But I, but I, but I really didn't. Um, I was just like, Hey, this is our job. This is what we're going to do. This is where we're at in the world. And, you know, we're going to sit there until they tell us exactly what they want us to do. And then we're going to go do it. And, you know, here in a few months, we'll be back in, you know, Tacoma and, and hanging out at the Ram, you know, drinking beer or whatever. You know, it's it's just one of those things where I didn't I didn't appreciate it then. But as, as more time has gone by, I think it was pretty cool. And uh, the environment back then was extremely cool. I mean, it's hard to even put into words for people what the environment was like to people who weren't there 
um, or who did go over there years later and that type of thing. Because when I say it was the Wild West, I mean that. I mean, it was it was almost one of those things where you're uncomfortable about it now because of the fact that we just your, your train of thought was is we're here to do a job and you forgot about the fact in ways that, you know, you're a guest, you know, to the, the, the good side of Iraq over there. But what you did instead was you were like, well, we're going to impose our will. And so if we're riding down the street in this convoy and you won't get out of our way, we're just going to either force you out of the way or drive up on the sidewalk and we'll run over whatever we have to run over. But we have to get somewhere and do something. And, you know, we didn't always uh, fight neighborly, I guess you could say. But uh, it was still that environment, though. You know, we didn't know any better. It's not like we knew, hey, we shouldn't be doing this. We should be doing this a different way. That's just the way we thought things were supposed to happen back then, you know. And uh, we were new at it. You know, anytime you're doing something for the first time, you're going to look back on it and say, man, you know, knowing what I know now, maybe we should have done that a little bit differently or not done that or, or done more of this or less of that. But it was a crazy, crazy environment. And you are nervous. Brody made me really nervous at first when he said that it was cool um, when they were in Iraq in the early days kind of in the wild, wild west environment he's talking about because I cringed and I thought, oh, like people aren't going to want to hear the warmongers say cool. But I think um, it's important to note that like people sign up to be in the army to blow stuff up and kill bad guys, right? Like there's a lot of reasons, but guys sign up for ranger regiment to blow stuff up and kill bad guys. And so I think in the sense that he was getting to do the things that he'd signed up to do. I think that's where the word cool is involved. But then I also think it's so important to acknowledge the fact that there's a lot of really good reflection going on about the fact that, hey, maybe there was a better way to be doing some of this. Maybe invading a country and imposing our will in such a manner wasn't always the right answer. Um, I don't have the right answer on how all of that should have gone or what we should have done differently. But I think it's so powerful to have a guy who thinks it's really cool to blow stuff up and kill bad guys also acknowledge that there's a side of that that has to be refined and done in the proper way. Um, So I just found that to be really beautiful. And perhaps moving into the next story from Brody's time in Iraq, I'd Again, it back to Joint Readiness Training Center where I didn't really know anyone and I, I didn't know a lot of these guys. I'd been told kind of in a hushed tone that Brody saved Jessica Lynch. Now, in 2003, March of 2003, there was a logistics convoy in Iraq that took a few wrong turns, got lost, and ended up being ambushed by some Iraqis. And there were several of the soldiers killed and several of them taken captive and one of them was Jessica Lynch and she was held captive for um, I think eight days and then she was rescued and Brody was on that rescue mission. What's so like just mind-boggling to think about is the fact that March of 2003, gosh I would have been a freshman in high school Uh, taking Spanish in Senor Killingbeck's classroom and so not even remotely 
thinking about the army. And so it's just sometimes when you stop and compare timelines, like I'm in high school and Brody's saving Jessica Lynch. So anyway, uh, that's a complete non sequitur, but here we go. Here's Brody's version. Looking back on it, the one time that uh, was really, really like, okay, this can, this could really get bad was when we went in to uh, get Jessica Lynch out. And I'm sure you probably remember who Jessica Lynch was, her and her convoy got lost and they ended up a bunch of them getting captured and killed. Uh, they were executed, everyone, but, but her, and, uh, we were on that, uh, rescue mission to go in and get her out of the hospital there. Um, and the, the leading up to that mission, it was sold as, look, this is going to be a, an all out knockdown drag out. You're going to be fighting the whole town because they do not want to give this girl up. And, and, uh, so that was, uh, yeah, it was a little different feeling because of the way they sold it. Uh, it didn't necessarily turn out that way. It was a pretty sim- simple mission. But uh, um, that's the one time I can look back on and really think, okay, you know, I'm, I need to trade my, my letters back home with someone who's not going on this mission because there's a good chance I might not come back and I want to make sure these letters get delivered and that kind of thing. So Brody ended up getting out of the Army after his initial contract expired with the Ranger Regiment. But he wouldn't stay gone for long. Well, I had a very interesting road because, like I say, I didn't even enlist until I was 25. And then I did my four and a half years of enlistment. Um, And so I got out right before I turned 30 and actually came back to South Carolina for four and a half years. I had a a couple different reasons why it was at the time I thought, you know what, it's better if I just, you know, I've done a lot in these four and a half years. It's better if I just sort of head back uh, to South Carolina and and move on. Um, So I came back to South Carolina for four and a half years and worked in pharmaceutical sales the whole time I was here. And uh, those particular reasons, uh, those situations that caused me to get out initially changed. And uh, <clears throat> so at the ripe old age of 30, let me think 35, I guess, 34, um, I decided to come back in. Um, you know, I hadn't gotten it all out of my system. I felt like there was a lot more that i wanted to accomplish and could accomplish in ways I could contribute. And I still wanted to serve and, and just had that desire inside of me that, uh, I decided, okay, I'm going to go back in the army. Um, and at that age, which, you know, a lot of people will be listening to this and being like, well, that's not very old, but for someone who's already a little bit beaten down and then you're 34 years old and you've been out of the game for four and a half years, going back to Ranger Regiment, um, wasn't the best idea. I was just like, you know what, you've been gone too long. A lot has changed in four and a half years. You're older, you know, you need to find something different to do. And I wanted to find something where I was still in the fight. I was still connected somehow to the ground forces. And so I started looking into aviation and, uh, I felt like that was the best way to do it. And, uh, and then beyond that, um, once I got there and, and we sort of got into, getting close to airframe selection. And I started trying to figure out, you know, between the Blackhawk and the Kiowa, I just finally whittled it down to the fact that for what I wanted to do in aviation, the Kiowa would be the best choice. And, uh, it definitely was. So when, when I was in Ranger Regiment, we didn't have a lot of support from the Kiowas back then, uh, that I can remember. We had a lot of Apache support. Um, if we had somebody flying over us, sort of, you know, looking at 
out for us. It was the Apaches mostly. Um, time to time, we'd have some daps up there and that type of thing. But um, so coming into flight school, I was like, well, I'm going to fly the uh, I'm going to fly the Blackhawk, you know, because I'd spent so much time in the Blackhawk and the Chinook when I was in Ranger Regiment, either jumping out of them or them taking us from one spot to the next on air assaults and that type of thing that I was just like, yeah, that that way I could really still be there with the, the ground guys and get them in and out and that type of thing. So I didn't know much about the Kiowa. I was a Blackhawk guy going in. And then when I was in BWS, um, my instructor was a former Kiowa pilot and he just sort of started, we just started forming a really good relationship, even in that short little window of time. And so a lot of the time that we were in a helicopter, even though we were working and he was teaching and I was trying to learn, we were talking a lot. And then when we get back and we do table talk, we'd talk about what we needed to, and then we'd stick around for an extra, you know, 30, 45 minutes and, and talk about his experiences in the Kiowa. And, and so he's the one that really uh, sort of brought me into it. And then the more I learned about it, the more I realized I was like, man, this is it right here. You know, we are going to go out there and we'll be above those guys all the time and we'll be helping them out and we'll be their eyes in the sky and constantly talking to them and almost kind of like just a team, you know? And so, that whole team concept and, and working with the ground guys as often as we did uh, really sold me on the Kiowa. Nobody heard much about it. It wasn't as sexy, you know, when you see army movies and everything, you don't see a bunch of Kiowas flying around. You know, you see the Blackhawk, Blackhawk down and, and all this stuff. And so that Blackhawk and Chinook and the Chinook being as different as it is, you know, it's got the two rotors and it's huge and Everybody knew about that stuff. And the Apache, oh, it's so sexy because it's got all the big guns and it'll blow up the world and that type of thing. But the cow is just sort of that little redheaded stepchild that nobody knows about. But I'm going to tell you right now that there's not another aircraft in the world that I would have rather flown than the Kiowa for all the years I did. We will hear so much more about Brody's years of flying the Kiowa later on in the series. Next week, in part three of Meeting the Cowboys, we will hear from Dave Stark. Thank you so much for joining us, Death Rides.